you know, in cardiology, I feel like, Ankur, we are doers, right? Even if I'm a general cardiologist, when a patient comes to my clinic, I want to do something for them to help them, right? So we are all wired that way. So, you know, I, I could totally see why people were having difficulty digesting the results. But at the end of the day, you respect, uh, the, you respect the data, you respect what is done very well in this trial, you're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is a wrap-up of European Society of Cardiology Congress um, from this year and you know like every year it's action-packed for cardiology and you know i i certainly believe it's the best cardiology conference um for each of us and we did an episode last year um with dr parwani which actually ended up being one of the most downloaded episodes uh from season three um and was um very well received by everyone around the globe and um you know, so, you know, this year we are actually back by popular demand. Uh, we have Dr. Parvani again with us on the show. Um, you know, it's a name in cardiovascular medicine and within cardiology, which, you know, in my opinion, requires no introduction. But for those of you who do not know Dr. Parvani, she is a cardiologist and assistant professor of medicine at Loma Linda University in California. And she was actually in Barcelona for the Congress and did a phenomenal coverage on Twitter for all of us who were not able to join in person. So with that introduction, Purvi, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us again this year. Thank you, Ankur. Always a pleasure to be back. And uh, yeah, ESC was a lot of fun, like always uh, this year as well. And I was delighted to be there as a faculty after two years. So I'm glad that I can bring those bits and pieces to this audience uh, who appreciated us a lot last year. So hopefully we have another successful episode this time around as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I wish the same. So we're just going to jump in right right away because we have quite a, quite a bit of material to cover. And um, I'm going to start asking you about Revived, which, you know, as you said, <laughs> there was a pin drop silence in the audience when this was being presented, the results were being presented and it sort of is, um, you know, time for all of us to, you know, take a pause, digest what the findings of the trial were um, and, you know, take note of one's own practice, but I'll have you, uh, you know, share your thoughts and, you know, also the findings of the study just for the introduction. This is, a trial which is trying to address revascularization in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy with low left ventricular systolic function, so ejection fraction less than 35%. And, you know, from my understanding, most of these patients did not have angina. So I'll stop here and I'll let you pick up and, and tell us more about the trial. Thank you, Ankur. So yeah, REVIVE stands for the revascularization for ischemic uh, ventricular dysfunction. And as you mentioned, when the trial was presented and as those Kaplan-Meier vent curves, uh, curves went on the screen, there was an audible pause, like there was an awe. And both sides of me were two interventional cardiologists from some different countries that I did not know about. And you should have seen their reaction. And I was just... I was just noticing how people were uh, reacting. And I think the bigger surprise for me came later when, you know, we, we, we digested this on Twitter and it continues to get more and more attention. But uh, just uh, for the listeners, so this was the trial that had LVEF of less than 35% extensive CAD. Some of us, uh, you know, have seen those cases, uh, the revived cases at TCT. It was also posted on Twitter. So check it out how bad the CAD was. And this CAD was randomized to multi-vessel PCI versus optimal medical therapy. So total, they enrolled around 700 patients. Trial took almost seven years to recruit and eight years to complete. Their follow-up, the mean follow-up was around 3.4% 
Again, poor percentage of women represented only 13% and uh, almost 40% of these patients were diabetics. So, you know, what a setup, right? They, this, to me, this trial was designed perfectly in favor of interventional cardiology to succeed, right? So, so a perfect setup for success. They take multivessel disease, they find a viable myocardium. And I actually went into the, you know, supplements of the paper and looked up their, you know, definitions of viability. So they did not even mess around, you know, as, as you know, viability on CMR, uh, you know, it's, it's not a dichotomous uh, variable. So they only took patients less than 25% of the scar. So really not that much of burden. And they needed uh, for the trial inclusion criteria, viability was needed in more than four dysfunctional myocardium, uh, myocardial seg uh, segments. So of course, um, as you mentioned, um, you know, 66% of these patients did not have any angina. 32% had either cl uh, CCS class 1 or class 2 angina. More importantly, 77 77% of the patients were NYHA class 1 or 2, and 23% uh, of NYHA class 3 and 4. So I can tell you that in my general cardiology clinic, I do see these patients predominantly asymptomatic, come with a, you know, LV dysfunction on the echo, there is multivessel CAD, and what do we do after that, right? So that, so the primary outcome uh, was all-cause mortality or hospitalization for heart failure, which occurred in almost 37% in PCI group, 38% in the GTMT group, and the findings were consistent across all the subgroups. So, um, you know, uh, if you look at the trial, it was a clear negative trial. But uh, if we look at the quality of life analysis, the KCCQ overall uh, summary score that did favor PCI at six months and at 12 months, but at 24 months, this, uh, you know, benefit was uh, nullified. So, um, if we look at uh, this trial overall, uh, you know, again, the first trial to include left main patients, you know, most of the times in our CAT conference, at least we hear this often, or left main, you know, there's no studies with left main, we need to protect the patient, we need to get survival benefit. So this trial did have 14% left main patients in PCI arm, 13% in GDMT arms, and again, as I said, in none of the subgroups there was any benefit. 50% of the patients had two-vessel disease and 38% of the patients had three-vessel disease. So one of the criticism on the Twitter, at least, that I saw was how many patients had complete revascularization. And I think the uh, the lead discussant uh, uh, and the presenter had uh, discussed this. So anatomical revascularization index uh, the mean index was around 71%. Uh, so in 70, 71% of the patient, complete revascularization was uh, achieved, um, yet, uh, you know, PCI did not show any benefit. Um, so to me, you know, when I look at this trial, uh, you know, this kind of joins all those negative trials for PCI that we have seen. Um, to me, uh, when I apply this to my clinical patient that comes to my clinic, I would say that if any patients come with uh, that come with ischemic cardiomyopathy, triple vessel disease, uh, and if they are symptomatic, I think our first duty is respect uh, stitch trial data and try to see if they're a cabbage candidate. And if they are not a candidate, then perhaps, uh, you know, get them on as much GDMT as you could and reassess them and see if they remain symptomatic. And if you could cannot pin down those symptoms to heart failure, and if you think it is truly anginal symptoms, um, then have that discussion with patients, tell them that, you know, we can make them feel better, even if the, you know, outcomes may not be better uh, by doing a, a PCI. Yeah, no, it, uh, excellent uh, discussion, Purvi, you know, and um, I was, um, you know, like you said, Twitter was on fire when this was being presented. And, you know, thanks for, again, an excellent coverage of, of the trial on Twitter as you were digesting the results yourself in Barcelona. And, um, 
you know, there were uh, discussions on Twitter, you know, who actually said, well, you know, do, do we really see these patients? And, you know, I, we actually do. I, I agree with you. Um, we see these patients all the time. And um, uh, I think, you know, personally for me, you know, eyes have, eyes have been rolled in, 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 the conf- in conferences when I've actually stood up and said, look, you know, we're trying to extrapolate cabbage results from stitch to PCI, but there isn't a trial um, for revascularization utilizing PCI as the revascularization option in patients with ischemic left ventricular systolic dysfunction. So we are taking a leap of faith here and extrapolating results from stitch and, you know, uh, you know, stitch the, the, the sub-study or the arm, which actually looked at viability, you know, really, um, you know, vi- viability didn't have any role to play whether or not these patients ended up doing better. Uh, I, I think the results for Stitch were, um, you know, true regardless of the status of their viability test, which, you know, again, for me as a clinician brings viability into question. But to your point, um, you know, a trial which was, uh, you know, designed for success of PCI um, and interventional cardiology, you have multivessel disease, you have ischemic LV systolic dysfunction, these patients are diabetic. Um, there is viability, which is showing viable myocardium. I mean, what else do you need, right, to uh, to really, um, uh, you know, sort of stand up and say, look, I'm going to revascularize this patient. This, this patient is going to have benefit from, from revascularization. And, you know, here we are with just um, overlapping Kaplan-Meier curves, as you, as you, uh, you know, pointed out. One question I have for you is, um, do you, th- and, you know, I, I certainly have to look at this myself, but my, um, my assumption is that there was not even a difference in uh, the delta improvement in, in LV ejection fraction. Yes, yes. I actually didn't mention that, but yeah. So if we look at the subgroups, uh, the LVEF, uh, you know, I think at 12 months, the it was like literally 0.9% point different, uh, you know, 1% different between the two, which is, you know, you, you, you just get surprised, right? Because we are all, you know, in cardiology, I feel like, Ankur, we are doers, right? Even if I'm a general cardiologist, when a patient comes to my clinic, I want to do something for them to help them, right? So we are all wired that way. So, you know, I I could totally see why people were having difficulty digesting the results. But at the end of the day, you you respect the data, you respect what is done very well in this trial, um, and you're absolutely right. Not much difference at all, like one person difference in LVEF. And to be honest with you, you know, reading echoes for so many years now, I have seen all those patients impella guided, you know, high risk PCI come back and there is no benefit at all. And you always question yourself, right? Like, why did this patient not improve? Because this myocardium did look okay before they went in. But I, I feel like this, all those loose threads were kind of tied by this trial. Um, you know, it, it clearly gave us some answers. And I, I guess, you know, a lot of people made the comment about, oh, was it bystander CAD? But I can tell you reading CMRs again for years, CMR is a very sensitive tool. And, you know, it will tell you if there is any, and you know, this, this CMR, I think the core lab uh, was in UK and you know that UK has way high number of uh, CMR usage and, um, uh, you know, it's a very uh, well-known leading CMR uh, cardiologist who was, uh, who was leading the core lab. So I have no doubt uh, that, you know, they did their due diligence. Patients were selected you know, very, very um, efficiently, uh, you know, by doing a viability testing in the best center where the CMR is done all the time. So like, to me, there's like, I I don't see anything why we should doubt, uh, you know, these results. And, you know, do we challenge the whole hypothesis of hibernating myocardium? You know, I I keep going back and forth. And in the, at least in the CMR world, one of the arguments I'll tell you that was brought up is, does the 
uh, viable myocardium make the tissue uh, more successful even to GDMT. And maybe that's why the GDMT was so much better um, that, you know, PCI did not uh, even make a difference. And that's something that I, I don't know. I don't know if uh, this, this style was not designed to test the viability. So again, we don't know. Um, you know, whether the GDMT arm could have been different, like, is there a, is there a possibility that non-viable myocardium, the GDMT may not do that much better? I don't know the answer to that. To me, it is still unlikely, but these are the questions that we are answering. And, you know, to me, we are thinking we are following the data and that, that to me is the biggest victory. And this is why I love being in cardiology because we test ourselves every time there is not an answer. We test ourselves whatever the result may be, we, I think we should accept it and, you know, move along um, now with these results. Yeah, no, I mean, more power to guideline directed medical therapy, you know, now with the quadruple backbone um, with MRAs and SGLT2s and beta blockers and, and ARNIs, um, you know, certainly that's the way to go. Um, and, And I would certainly consider that, you know, on top of, of course, if it's, uh, you know, incident coronary disease and there's ischemic, cardiomyopathy, you would give aspirin and a statin and then actually see how these patients do. But, you know, really, um, ironclad in terms of its design, in terms of its execution, in terms of objective documentation of multivessel disease and also viability. Um, and, uh, you know, what a way to randomize and even follow up. I mean, the follow up is not short, as you as you mentioned. Um, so, you really, uh, you know, I think practice informing, practice changing, very well conducted. Congratulations to the investigators, uh, you know, uh, certainly goes down as one of the landmark trials in cardiovascular medicine. Um, Great, great discussion. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to continue uh, our debate on this um, in in the meetings to come. Um, Moving along, uh, the the second one that you've picked for the discussion uh, is is Dan Kavas. And again, Important study, you know, it's a population-based cohort study, um, uh, actually a, a randomized uh, design. And um, this one basically uh, talks about uh, screening, population-based screening for cardiovascular disease um, and, uh, you know, whether or not it has any effect on the risk of death. So I'll have you take it from here and tell us more about the study. Yeah, so another trial that described, uh, as you mentioned, five years outcomes of the Danish cardiovascular screening. Very well executed, I must say, when you look at the study design, although they are not in my good books because they didn't enroll any women. So we'll talk about that at the end. But I I think that when you look at the study design, it's truly impressive what they did. Um, you know, so we know that Denmark, you know, is very well advanced when it comes to healthcare system and what what they have. Um, so this was a screening trial. They took 46,000 men um, between age 75, uh, sorry, 65 to 74. One third of them got screening, two third got standard routine care. And the screening was like seriously comprehensive. They took one non-contrast CT. On that non-contrast CT, they determined patient's calcium score, coronary artery calcium score, and also detected if there are any aneurysm. And, uh, oh, by the way, the CT was read by technologist. I'm assuming to minimize um, the cost. And then um, when these patients came for their SCAD scoring, they also took a snapshot of their rhythm to detect any atrial fibrillation. They took their blood pressure to detect hypertension or, and ankle brachial blood pressure measurements to see if they have hypertension or if they have uh, peripheral artery disease. They took a blood sample to detect any diabetes mellitus or what the cholesterol numbers, what the hype, you know, if they had any hypercholesteremia. And everything was done in a super efficient manner in less than 40 minutes. Then they followed these patients for 5.6 years. The primary outcome uh, was death from any cause, which is reasonable given that this was a screening uh, strategy that they were testing. So after 5.6 years, 
12.6% in the screening group and 13% in the control group had died, and there was no significant reduction in the primary outcome. So the hazard ratio was 0.95, and the confidence interval was 0.9 to 1, based on which the, you know, the lead investigator said that maybe there is a possibility of a benefit um, you know, uh, because there is that 10 point difference in the confidence interval. But nonetheless, they did a pre-specified analysis in men between 65 to 70. So the trial was done between 65 to 75. They took men between 65 to 70. And in that pre-specified analysis, there was 11 percent reduction in the primary outcome. So, you know, of course, with any of these screening strategies, particularly when you use a CT, we have seen greater uptake of antiplatelet and lipid lowering medicine in the prior CT trials. And that was the same here as well. There was larger use of statins, of aspirin in that screening arm, but there was no difference when they looked at the antihypertensive, any diabetic medicine, any coronary or aortic revascularization or any anticoagulant use um, because they also screen for AFib. So then since it was a screening arm, they also did a cost-effective analysis. And um, I think uh, if we look in the US dollars, the, I think the healthcare cost per person was around 206 US dollar. And uh, the quality adjusted life year statistics were probably comparable to the breast cancer screening. So, you know, very well done study uh, for particularly for cardiovascular preventive strategy. It was negative. And, you know, there are some criticisms. So, you know, number one thing is that is it really uh, optimal age to do screening? Um, we know that atherosclerosis, atherosclerosis starts when we are born and it's a continuous process. So one can argue that uh, is it is it really the optimal age if we want to prevent cardiovascular disease? I would say probably no, uh, looking at the patients that I see. The second thing is that although there was, uh, you know, they did the calcium score, there was no comparator, uh, comparator arm, right? And that has been the criticism for any CAC studies so far published that there is no randomized control trial. There is no comparator arm for calcium score. So, we have CT data from the, you know, coronary CT world to show that, you know, the screening improves and these patients take more statin. So one can argue, which has always been a criticism, at least on Twitter that I have seen, that do we just, should we just like stick to the goals, which is our goal is to put patients on, you know, statin. And if they qualify for aspirin, we should put them on aspirin. Why do additional testing to do that? Now, I tell you, I use calcium score quite a bit in my clinical practice. And every time patients see that calcium and you explain them what exactly that means when it is in coronary artery, they, I at least, I'm biased because I've seen better compliance, um, you know, when it comes to patient population. And, you know, we have scored hard to show that these patients did uh, do better. But the question is, you know, this was a this was Danish study, and Denmark is a small country with a very solid healthcare system. When you take any other country with not so solid healthcare system, um, is it really um, you know feasible to do this kind of societal screening? Also, they did not take any women at all, and I'm very upset about it. And there was you know a lot of discussion. Um, at ESE about this and a lot of uh, lead investigators raised some, raised some serious ethical concern uh, about this. Um, and uh, in fact, the discussant, um, you know, called out uh, this and, you know, one can, you know, we, we can really think about why these funding agencies for these kind of huge studies are giving the money for the studies that do not enroll women at all. When we know that atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease still remains number one cause for death in women as well. Um, so that's the thing. I don't know if this trial will apply to other countries. I don't know if it will apply to 50% of the population, which is women. I don't know if it would apply to non-white people. So apart from that, uh, I commend the investigators for the comprehensive screening tools and how they conducted the trial and how efficient they were in doing the screening as well as in following up the patients. But 
you know, it, it still remains uh, to be answered. What exactly is the optimal screening strategy for our cardiac patients? So again, um, an, an important study, like you mentioned, and screening is something which comes up routinely for us, you know, whether we're seeing patients in clinic, whether we have friends who have parents who are in the age group and need screening, right? Or, you know, whether we're, we have neighbors who, you know, happen to know a neighbor cardiologist and want to run, run some screening tests by which, you know, some of their executive health checkups, uh, you know, conducted for them. So it's, it's relevant, you know, again, it's, um, um, it's, it's something that I just need, I need to sit down with and, and really ponder as to, you know, how do we offer screening or should we offer screening at all? And, and at what age should we start screening? Um, and, you know, I, again, I, it, I, it's beyond me, quite frankly, to see a trial of, of this scale um, with that, again, ironclad methodology, who, uh, which decided to, you know, not include women. Uh, I mean, when, you know, both you and I know that the burden of, burden of cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis is, is shared equally with women. Um, oh, uh, so, um, yeah, it, it just befuddles me that we still have a trial like this in, in 2022, you know, but here we are, and this is such a well-conducted study. Uh, but, you know, barring that, uh, you know, like you mentioned, uh, again, excellent tools utilized for screening. So ankle break in index for uh, peripheral arterial disease, CAC score. Um, then they looked at hypercholesterolemia, diabetes. Um, so fairly comprehensive. And, you know, AFib and aneurysms also, which, um, I mean, the, the guidelines and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the guidelines is that anyone with a history of smoking over 65 gets an ultrasound for an aneurysm screen, right? Um, so, and then you, here you have uh, sort of people in the same age group. Now, I don't, I don't know what percentage of these were smokers. Uh, I'll have to look in, into the data shelves myself. Uh, but again, to, to then come out and say, you know, we screened this population and the numbers are not, they're not trivial. I mean, these are fairly large numbers. Um, and the follow-up is, is excellent. You know, five years is not a small amount of time. Uh, to, to then um, say that, you know, there was not a difference in, in all-cause death is, again, you know, very similar to the first study that we discussed. You know, one would just take a pause and really ponder and, and ask questions, you know, what are, we, what are we supposed to do? You know, are we supposed to offer screening? Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure you see these patients in your clinic too. You know, it's just a cardiology wellness exam. I have a family history of premature atherosclerosis or I have a family history of heart disease. And more often than not, that family history isn't really true family history with onset, you know, in men um, less than 45 and in women less than 55. Um, you know, it's sort of in the 60s. And then you're sort of like, okay, we could do a calcium score. But then if you now have this study, how does that change your practice, Pruby? Quite frankly, it doesn't, Ankur. And I'll tell you why, because I told you that, you know, this study does not apply to many cases that we see, um, you know, in our clinic. And I, I think that this study, if anything, so look at the, you know, contrast, right? You have revived shows, you know, I was telling this to my fellows and it kind of, when I did, as you say, introspection on my flight and stuff about what, what science had been presented at ESC, it's so mind blowing. On one side, you have repeated studies to show that, um, you know, doing secondary treatment doesn't work. GDMT works and, you know, atherosclerosis is bad. And we know that, you know, there was uh, PCSK9 data presented as well, right? So prevention of atherosclerosis uh, is good, but treatment of atherosclerosis somehow um, does not make any difference, right? So prevention to me is very, very important. And I would not technically disregard this study completely because, as, you know, as I told you that those confidence interval were, you know, um, quite, there was like that 10 point difference and there was benefit in the 65 to 70. But I, what the questions I have is, 
prevention is good and we know we all ought to do prevention regardless of what cardiology subspecialty we belong to but which is the population where we do um, you know the screening is the question that remains right um, i think recently the miami um, uh, heart study was uh, published uh, you know that looked at the prevalence of atherosclerosis and almost 50% of the patients asymptomatic patients have atherosclerosis and you know that doesn't surprise us right so screening is good at what point the screening should go on i don't know i don't think that this study showed us the positive outcome where we can take that and start screening our 60 year old patient so i i don't know i i to me prevention remains the most important and particularly now that everything else kind of is you know going out of favor right uh, you know prevention is the most important thing to me in cardiology um in this day and age so what population we target and uh, you know um, the other thing that comes to me as i was at esc which was another mind blowing thought i heard dr fuster say this somewhere that there is a constant tension we have in cardiology between precision medicine and um simplicity right so do you take global health and decide to do uh, prevention screening cac scoring which is very crude way to look at atherosclerosis or do you take those patients we all have heard those south asian men i lost my friend you know last year suddenly very healthy uh, you know and we all have those examples right where people are lost suddenly so or so do we take those crude measures of screening or do we go with precision medicine and decide to see and that that's a tension that remains even in my mind um you know when i see a patient um you know what is the best strategy to provide um treat the diagnostics uh, to that patient so that we can um treat them early enough where they, they do not get any manifested uh, coronary artery disease yeah no i think you you raise an important uh question there that that was a really good comment and that that is at what point do you actually start screening uh, you know i think that is a bigger question and you know again like um you know prevention is the way to go i mean I, i'm i'm a huge proponent and a practitioner of prevention myself um and i i completely believe in prevention um the the question really to me is after this trial particularly is that is it really moot to even offer screening at that age you know like you said at the beginning of the discussion and really at what age should we um start screening you know and and south asians of course there is a heightened risk for atherosclerosis the onset is earlier but we we don't have that kind of study specifically in south asians and maybe we should um but i you know again um important study relevant data um thanks for bringing the pitfalls uh, to the to the fore uh, you know for the listenership and uh, again you know practice informing um so moving moving along uh, the next one uh, that you've picked for discussion is deliver uh, so we're back to discussing sglt2s uh, you know this time in patients with hfmref which is mildly reduced ejection fraction um and the style also included patients with hfpf which is preserved ejection fraction so you want to talk to us about this trial yes and i should disclose that i have received some funding i am a speaker for astrazeneca for dapa so with that disclosure um, you know i think that the the sclt2 inhibitors have you know it's the it's the medicine that keeps on giving so uh, this this result for deliver was already known since may but it was nice to see uh, you know all the details at esc so so this was uh, uh, dapagliflozin and heart failure in mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction um, as you mentioned 11 manuscripts on that same day with different papers combining deliver and uh, you know some of the other uh, empa uh, trials Uh, but in this trial they took uh, 6200 patients with mean age of 72 uh, years of uh, 44% women uh, 10 mg daily uh, dapagliflozin versus a placebo on top of the usual therapy patients were followed for <clears throat> 2.3 years and um, you know during which time dapagliflozin reduced the rate of cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure with a number needed to treat 
uh, treat of 32. So again, the results demonstrated significant reduction in primary composite outcomes of cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure. Um, and, uh, you know, the rate was 16.4% amongst the patients that were mildly reduced or preserved EF versus 19.5% in the patients that received placebo. So the most important thing, most important finding here, I want our listeners to note is that LBEF did not influence the results by any means. And uh, as I remember, as the discussant said there multiple times that, you know, it was there is a remarkable consistency that we see when it comes to uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, but particularly uh, with dapaglufosin in this trial with every pre-specified uh, subgroup. So, you know, the effect of the medicine did not differ between the patients uh, that had ejection fraction above or below 60%. Um, why this is important is because Emperor Preserve trial that was done with empaglufosin had decreasing benefit with higher end of LVEF. So, um, you know, so so this this trial again, you know, supported uh, SGLT2 inhibitors um, regardless of EF, age, gender, or presence of uh, diabetes mellitus. And um, I, I think that uh, I, uh, the discussion mentioned that these results will definitely impact the guidelines and perhaps they'll come up with another update for the guidelines um, and because right now the STLT2 inhibitors is a class 2A for heart failure preserved EF. Um, and at least there was some discussion um, that hopefully this will make it class 1. So why it is important to, you know, again and again um, notice this difference is because most medicine like Entresto or Aldactone uh, have benefit with heart failure, uh, uh, you know, mildly reduced EF 40 to 49 percent, but not with the true heart failure preserved EF. So truly a win for our patients. We all have seen those patients. They keep coming back to hospitals and this clearly reduced, um, you know, heart failure hospitalization as well. Few important things to remember here is that, um, as you know, heart failure preserved EF can have cardiomyopathies, um, you know, and those cardiomyopathies, if they were diagnosed, were excluded. So this was heart failure preserved EF, um, but no presence of any sort of cardiomyopathy. Um, the and then you know the other thing that we need to remember is that you know our our patients um, I I practice um, in you know Inland Empire which is unfortunately the most um, you know one of the most uh, low socioeconomical class neighborhood in California and you know how many of my patients are, are able to afford DAPA or EMPA. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you that not many, right? So it's still a struggle how many patients can afford it. And that's the, you know, to me, it really hurts me when you have a medicine like this, you have Entresto, you have Dapaglufosin, Empaglufosin, but then at the end of the day, the patients cannot afford it. Um, that truly hurts me that there's something out there. It kind of reminds me of being back home in India. Uh, that was probably one of the main reasons why I, left India and came to United States because to me it was, you know, very, my heart would get heavy when I would see these patients who deserve therapies and did not get it. So this is an ongoing struggle that we all have to, um, you know, answer at some point and hopefully, um, you know, these uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, will help us. Um, the other important thing is uh, to remember is that effect of this medicine was apparent within few weeks or months. Um, they also included the patients with, who were hospitalized. And so I think that very confidently I can say that as soon as you see a patient with heart failure, regardless of what the EF is, regardless of whether you get the echo or not on the same day, you can probably start that patient on SDLT2 inhibitors uh, if other contraindications for medicine are not there. So again, remarkable study, remarkable trial, um, practice-informing trial, win for our patients. But we'll see, you know, how many of uh, how many of our patients can afford it. Yes, uh, excellent discussion there. I couldn't agree with you more that cost remains the the biggest. Um, 
deterrent for us to prescribe this medication, you know, for patients. And, um, you know, after all these years and after all these trials, um, we finally have a, a class of drugs um, which has shown benefit in a very challenging population. I mean, 50% of heart failure patients have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So it's a, it's a sizable cohort of patients that we see. And, you know, for years on end, you know, there was one trial after the other with, with a multitude of agents and none of these medications showed benefit. You finally have a class which is, which is showing benefit, you know, with emperor preserved and not deliver. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, uh, again, I agree with you, heartbreaking that you would not prescribe this drug uh, for cost being a deterrent. So, you know, something needs to be done about it. Absolutely. I don't know what, I don't know how. Uh, that just remains a constant struggle, uh, you know, even even in the United States, unfortunately. Um, but again, you know, uh, important important trial and um, uh, I think for just just the practical purposes, what what is when you see these patients in clinic pool V and in patients who can afford the drug, what is your uh, starting regimen in terms of dose? And then what do you do just practically? How do you follow these patients in clinic in terms of getting any blood work done or any testing done and asking them any particular questions when it comes to tolerance? Great question. So, you know, the dose is the same, 10 milligrams per day. Um, I think that uh, the only contraindication that I truly follow is if they are on hemodialysis or if the GFR is less than 25. That's when I think there are uh, physicians who would tell you that they use it uh, between even 15 to 25. But if you look at their package insert, I think GFR 25 remains um, less than GFR 25. It is not recommended. I Particularly for, um, you know, DAPA or EMPA, I tell you that I haven't done much blood work, but generally, you know, now the recommendation, at least for heart failure, is that start aggressively, start, um, you know, three class of medicine together um, if you can, and it's not going to, you know, hurt uh, the patients. So I I do that. And when I have Entresto on board or, um, you know, Aldectone on board, then I would check their... um, uh, camp seven, um, you know, um, in a week and in day three and in a week, um, as the recommendation says, but not particularly just for, you know, DAPA or EMPA. Um, I would always instruct the patient about the UTI risk, uh, because as you know, particularly with uh, women, I think they, you know, the uh, female anatomy has been associated for, um, you know, with more UTIs in these drugs. Um, And uh, I have patients who I have, uh, you know, I had to take them off SCLT2 inhibitors. So um, if you look at, again, the package insert, uh, you know, they say that uh, just regular hygiene should prevent the recurrent UTI. And uh, you should just instruct the patients not to, um, um, you know, basically just to take care of their personal hygiene. But I have probably three or four examples where that has not worked and patients, uh, patients, um, you know, cannot uh, take this medicine. So those are the things that I discuss. Yeah, no, uh, good points. And, you know, just for the listenership again, and I ask these questions to you specifically because there's a lot of inertia, you know, in experience, there's a lot of inertia with, even with all these data coming out, for this drug class, I see cardiologists having a lot of inertia and in prescribing SGLT2s for some reason. Um, I, you know, these these are questions which are just practical, you know, points so that we can help our colleagues to um, somehow mitigate that inertia and get on board in prescribing these drugs. Typically, you said that you would be comfortable starting early on and with, with aggressive therapy as backbone, which I completely agree with. Which agents do you typically pick? You typically pick a beta blocker, an MRA, and an SGLT2, and then add an ARNI. How do you go about doing that? I I do. I mean, there are you know there are paper written about it, and I hope that no heart failure uh, cardiologist is listening, and I hope they don't punish me if I say something wrong. But uh, I do beta blockers, Entresto, and SGLT2 inhibitors together. With uh, spironolactone or aldectone, I just want to see with Entresto what the potassium and creatinine is first before I start the aldectone. So that's that's how I do it. So I'll bring them uh, back in follow up. 
um, you know, at a short interval um, in one month or so. And then at that time, I'd review all that, um, you know, the lab, uh, lab data. And then I would see if they're appropriate for aldectone as far as blood pressure is concerned, as far as potassium and creatinine is concerned, um, or any other contraindication that may come up. All right. Excellent. Now, again, uh, you know, um, for anyone and everyone who is listening, you know, SGLT2s are revolutionary um, for our patients and are life-saving therapies for a challenging population. And, you know, we all encourage that you should get on board and, and start prescribing these medications. Of course, we know cost containment is an issue, but if that is not an issue, then these patients should not be, um, um, you know, left alone in terms of having access to this life-saving therapy. So moving on, um, uh, secure. Um, so uh, a randomized trial for, for a polypill, which which contained aspirin and ACE inhibitor and a statin. So do you want to tell us about that, Purvi? Yeah. So secure was a secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease in elderly trial. So this was a secondary prevention trial. So um, again, another, you know, very smartly picked group. They took 2,500 patients, 31% of women, uh, predominantly older patient, a mean age of 76 that had MI, myocardial infarction in previous six months. So we know that these are the patients that are extremely high risk, right? They have had MI and these are the patients where GDMT would completely you know, play a very important role in reducing their future risk and the present risk um, if the patients take GDMT. So, of course, I, I, to me, this trial was designed for success, right? Because we know that, at least in United States, when you, not only the compliance is an issue when you prescribe, you know, three, four different medicine to the patients, whether it is MI or heart failure, but also with every pill a patient uh, that you prescribe, a patient has to pay the copay, right? So if you can somehow combine and give them this polypill, you can achieve, of course, better compliance and hopefully reduced cost, um, you know, and more patients can afford it, more patients afford it, more take it. So really nicely, you know, selected patient group with MI in last six months. In the baseline group, the blood pressure, the systolic blood pressure was 129. The LDL was 89 uh, milligrams per deciliter, which I would argue is quite good for patients that just had MI, because none of my patients that had MI come with those kind of numbers. But nonetheless, polypill included aspirin 100, uh, ramipril 2.5, 5, and 10. So three doses for ramipril and a torvastatin 20 or 40. So 41% of the patients had ramipril 2.5, a torvastatin 40, and aspirin 100. Um, almost 92% of the patients received the higher dose of statin, which is 40 milligrams of torvastatin. 80% were also on beta blocker. And, um, you know, 95% of the patients um, in both polypeel as well as the usual care arm um, already had an additional antiplatelet agent, which is understandable given that they just had an MI. So the six-month adherence, as you can um, expect it, it was much better in the polypeel arm and it remained consistently well. The compliance was better even at two years. They followed these patients for four years. The primary outcome was cardiovascular death, MI, stroke, or any urgent revascularization, which happened 9.5% in polypill arm versus 12.7% in standard uh, arm. And uh, so basically 3.2% absolute risk reduction with 24% relative risk. So quite impressive number. So when you look at this trial, of course, it's an impressive trial, impressive result, except uh, what was surprising, though, is that even though you have this significant difference in the outcomes, the systolic or the diastolic blood pressure numbers between the two arms at two years were not different. The mean LDL level was not different. Um, and yet you have significantly lower risk of a major, a major cardiovascular outcomes in the polypill arm compared to usual arms. So the question is, what drove the difference? And, um, you know, I think Dr. Fuster presented this trial and he argued that it was the pleiotropic effect of the aspirin uh, or sorry, statins or, or, uh, or and, and the ACE inhibitors 
Um, and then I think uh, Salim Yusuf said that it was the use of aspirin, the polypill. But regardless of, you know, these are just speculation, right? Can the, can the pleiotropic effect be so big that you have 24% relative risk reduction? We ought to ask ourselves. And, but, but you know, it's a, it's a positive trial. And nonetheless, it worked in patients. So that's a win. Now, I must tell you that even if we look at the previous studies with aspirin, the benefit with aspirin, uh, asp aspirin usage in this particular population for secondary prevention hasn't been that big, 24% uh, relative risk re reduction. So whether to put that on aspirin or combination of pleiotropic effects plus aspirin uh, remains to be understood. And there was a limitation that multiple people there pointed out was it was a bit underpowered. And that, I think, was because of the COVID pandemic that happened. And it was a bit biased because it was an open label um, um, design. Um, the way I see this is that, you know, for global reduction of cardiovascular health, Polypil has, there have been multiple trials that we have seen with Polypil. It works in primary prevention, and I think it's the way to go even for secondary prevention because we all have been on the other side, um, you know, of that um, uh, scenario where we see patients who cannot afford medicine or who forget medicine because of X, Y, Z reasons, and then they come back with, um, you know, second event, which can be fatal in some cases or life-changing in other cases. So I think that regardless of, you know, the criticism on uh, how the results were driven, I think it's the way to go, um, you know, for many countries and many population across the world. Yeah, no, again, uh, um, a global trial too, right, Purvi? And um, my, my question to you is, how how do you see its implementation in the U.S. particularly? I'm, I remain skeptical of its implementation in the U.S., uh, because of a myriad of reasons we've discussed, um, you know, earlier in the show. But um, do you really see this coming in the U.S.? I, I highly doubt it. Um, no, I mean, the pharmaceutical lobby in U.S. is quite strong. And, you know, yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that, but there may be some challenges. Um but I think globally, this was this would be a blessing, right? And I, I do think that there are patients, definitely, um, there are patients in excess in the United States that would benefit from such a strategy, regardless of what the insurance coverage or pharmaceutical coverage would be. Uh, we all know that in the United States, our healthcare cost is through the roof. And particularly, these kind of strategies would, uh, you know, bring it down and, you know, I, I tell you, I had an allergic reaction like last month and I had to take pills for like one week and it's really annoying to take pills. So I don't even like blame our patients. I had to take multiple pills a day and, you know, I had gastritis and this and that. And I just had a new respect for our patients where we, we tell them that, oh, take these five pills. And for us, it's easy to prescribe. But on the other side, there is you know, every patient is different. They have side effects. Um, you know, they cannot afford it. Um, they get gastritis because they are taking, you know, all these pills together. So I definitely think there is a market for this, whether it would be successful or not. That is a question to be answered, particularly given the pharmaceutical lobbying um, in the United States. But um, we'll see. Yeah, no, I, it's certainly for... You know, for example, for a country like India, this is such a boon. Um, and I'm certain that there are many countries, um, you know, not only in the Southeast Asian or South Asian region or Asia um, at large, but also Africa and, you know, North America, where, you know, this strategy is, is going to work and patients are going to love it and it's going to be prescribed widely. Um, I mean, polypill sort of has been in, in existence in the domestic Indian market, even before there was a thing called polypill, I mean, you know, we, you, you had these combinations of aspirin and clopidogrel, and I would always wonder, like, why, why don't we have such combination therapies in, in, in the U.S.? And, you know, and on the contrary, um, you would have those combinations available in India and prescribers prescribing them without actually having a trial like this. So, I, you know, um, so, um, you know, again, uh, global win. Um, you know how implementable it is in the U.S. Uh, I, 
you know, I think time alone will tell, which, uh, which brings us to our last trial, uh, again, a very global trial with, with global enrollment. And uh, it, uh, it's a particularly special one for me. And I'm glad you picked it because the second author on the paper and the discussant who presented it is Karthik, who is uh, a mentor and friend of mine from my alma mater in Delhi, the All India Institute. Uh, so a great day for him and, and for, for the All India Institute and, and obviously for patients and rheumatic heart disease. Again, uh, we don't see that um, quite, you know, quite often in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, with, with immigration now and, and with um, refugees, you know, things may change. But, um, uh, you know, so still, it does not is not a, a demographic we usually see in the U.S., but is very prevalent in, in India and Asia and Africa. Uh, so tell us about rheumatic heart disease associated AFib or what should be valvular AFib. Um, and, you know, just uh, to refresh the memories of the listeners, most of the DOAC studies were, were conducted in patients with non-valvular AFib. So with that, uh, you know, preamble, I'm going to have you discuss the results of the trial. Yeah. So Invictus is, uh, it stands for Investigation of Rheumatic Atrial Fibrillation Treatment Using Vitamin K Antagonist, Ribaroxaban or Aspirin Studies. And, um, you know, I'm so glad I picked this because I didn't realize you had the connection, um, you know, with the discussant. But nonetheless, um, this trial showed that um, uh, Ribaroxaban, um, you know, it actually... Um, did not prevent any adverse cardiovascular events when um, amongst the patients that had rheumatic heart disease. So, you know, rheumatic heart disease, as you said, uh, Ankur, is very prevalent across the globe. Um, I think we do see quite a bit in Southern California because of all the Hispanic population that we have, but uh, 40 million patients around the world, uh, mostly in low or uh, middle income uh, countries. And these patients, um, come with the symptoms, almost half of them would have atrial fibrillation, though that atrial fibrillation really brings on the symptom in half of these patients. When they are treated, they are, of course, right in the standard of care had been warfarin, which got tested with ribaroxaban in this trial. But when they get treated with, uh, you know, warfarin, uh, only one third get the INR in that therapeutic range. Um, so definitely a study that was needed because hopefully with oral anticoagulants, the hope was that, you know, you can kind of mitigate those challenges and get the patients, um, you know, in a better uh, uh, kind of uh, milieu when it came to anticoagulation. So the total number of patients enrolled were uh, 4,500. Uh, mean duration was around uh, 3.1 years. So they uh, enrolled patients from almost 24 countries. You ought to have rheumatic heart disease um, uh, and atrial fibrillation and also Chadwask score of um, uh, at least two, so more than one, which is at least two, uh, mitral stenosis um, with a mitral valve area of less than two centimeters square or an echocardiographic evidence of left atrial spontaneous echo contrast or left atrial thrombus. So you needed to have one of these criteria in addition to having rheumatic heart disease and atrial fibrillation. So very well, uh, you know, selected population again. For the primary outcomes, they had stroke, systemic embolism, MI or death for, from uh, vascular uh, uh, or unknown causes. There were 560 events in the Ribaroxaban treated uh, patients and 446 events in, with the warfarin. So the hazard ratio was 1.25, um, you know, with a confidence interval of 1.1 to 1.4. So what was very surprising is that Ribaroxaban actually, of course, failed to show any benefit, but it increased the risk of death by 23% and risk of stroke by 37%. Um, there was no difference in risk of major fatal life-threatening or any clinically relevant um, uh, non-major bleeding or intracranial hemorrhage. So, you know, I, I fail to understand this, that regard, you know, the bleeding was not different, yet you had higher risk of death, 23% uh, all-cause mortality. 
um, you know, increased in rivaroxaban arm. So um, very surprising there. Um, and also the second surprise to me was that if you look at the drug discontinuation, it was actually more common in patients that were treated with rivaroxaban. And actually 23% of the patients stopped the medicine before the completion of the trial compared to 6% in the warfarin therapy. So maybe, you know, one can argue that maybe these patients were just used to being on warfarin and they didn't like the this new pill that, you know, I, I don't know, I'm just speculating here, but maybe that was the reason. And the other silver lining was that you know, even if when we look at the real world data of warfarin, and we are always worried about, um, you know, INR, right? Because I told you that only one third of these patients have INR in the range that we want them to be. But with this trial, the after enrollment, and, you know, that warfarin arm had um, uh, the INR uh, recorded, uh, I think, in 56% of the patients at six months, 59% at one year, 65 at two years. 64 at four years. So consistent, good INR throughout the study, which is to me, at least that's, that's a good sign that these patients were actually taking it. Um, you know, whether it was the effect of the trial that, uh, you know, that probably needs to be discussed, but, um, you know, it was consistent, good INR in the group. So I guess the, you know, the, what do we take home from this is, um, you know, I don't think that we should be using any oral anticoagulants for patients that have rheumatic uh, mitral stenosis because somehow these patients are valvular AFib, um, in other words, because I think that the way probably the anticoagulation uh, risk works for this patient is perhaps different, right, than the other patients with AFib that we see. Um, so I think this this data um, gave us a clear answer on that. Um, we always wondered this. So again, another, you know, practice informing trial, what not to do is as important as what to do. And this was another one of those trials. And hence, we picked this. Um, the exclusion criteria, I just want to mention, I want to mention those um, mechanical valves were excluded with this trial. Dual antiplatelet was excluded and uh, GFR less than 15 was excluded. And as usual, pregnancy was excluded, which I would say that we do see these patients with rheumatic mitral stenosis, at least in Southern California. I have sizable patients, female patients with rheumatic mitral stenosis that want to be pregnant. So those patients were excluded. So, you know, those, those probably um, would remain the same guidelines. Another thing, you know, like we know, the rheumatic heart disease is more common in women. 72% of these patients for Invictus were actually women. So more prevalence. And um, um, so I, 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 to me, I think that, again, this is a very important trial. It told us what not to do. And I'm, I'm glad that it shed a light um, that what we believed in was right. And warfarin will continue to be the standard of care for these patients. Yeah, no, again, super trial, uh, very important, uh, very important for the global burden of rheumatic heart disease uh, patient population. Um, and, you know, the other thing, Purvi, I think why is, uh, discontinuation may have been more in the Riva group compared with the Warfarin group, it could be cost, um, you know, because you have, um, I mean, certainly this is, this, this statement is definitely true in India. Um, I, I don't know about the rest of the world, but uh, you know, cost is um, um, is something that patients, you know, do ponder when they are put on DOACs in India. You know, this has certainly been my experience in conversations that I've had with, uh, you know, friends and, you know, even my father b back home. Um, um, you know, the other reason, as you were speculating, is these patients were just very comfortable and had a routine with warfarin and didn't want to change. For a newer, um, you know, also when you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure how much of the discussion around bleeding and reversal agents happens, um, you know, for example, in India. But um, you know, for for whatever reason, it may be patient preference. You know, these patients may not have wanted to be on on rivaroxaban compared with warfarin. But again, um, you know, uh, provocative data. Um, important uh, uh, subgroup of patients and, um, you know, uh, 
will have uh, an uh, imminent and immediate impact um, in those who, uh, you know, digest the results and start applying these results to their uh, practice. And again, shout out to Karthik and, and to the All India Institute for doing such a fantastic job on a global scale in, in coming out with the study and, and the New England paper. Um, so that actually wraps up. Uh, I know it's a longish episode uh, compared to our, our usual episodes, but again, that's backed by popular demand. And Purvi, you know, as usual, thanks for doing a fantastic job. Uh, very well covered, uh, very well presented. Um, for uh, everyone who's listening, uh, you know, we take feedback seriously. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, whatever platform you, you're using to listen to these episodes. And, you know, we take the feedback uh, seriously. We take it at heart and we try and make adjustments and improvements. Um, any closing remarks, Purvi, for uh, for Parallax and, uh, and for our audience and uh, any closing remarks on Barcelona and ESC? Yeah, no, thank you again for inviting me. I feel like, yeah, ESC was like, I always say this, uh, and you're going to laugh at this, but I feel like ESC was Coachella. It's Coachella for cardiology. <laughs> and it's really this huge medical festival. So I truly enjoyed it. And I really hope that we all as cardiologists do a bit of introspection and probably put those defenses, you know, down there and just look at, you know, all this evidence in a um, probably more in a uh, non-partial way and see, you know, the benefit and risk for our individual patients, because that's the whole point of conducting these multi-million dollar trials end of the day, um, you know, it's our patients that matter. So I have no doubt we all have great intentions. Um, we all may be biased, you, me, anyone out there, but hopefully we have, um, you know, we clean our lenses time by time to see the clarity on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Purvi. This has been great. And, um, um, you know, for, for the listeners, you know, thank you for listening and thank you for tuning in every other Monday. Um, Feedspot actually rated uh, Parallax as the, the second um, on the list of 15 best cardiology podcasts that they published in September. So, uh, you know, to the listeners and also to the guests like Dr. Parvani, who've been gracious with their time. Thank you to everyone for uh, for making Parallax what it is today. Uh, it wouldn't be without the guests and without the listeners. So thanks again. And We'll see you uh, another Monday with another guest. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.